0: Hello and welcome to IEEE Robotics Podcast. Hello, Professor uh, Mike and Josh for the podcast. It's such honor to have both of you. So I would like to ask you first uh, how you'd like to define yourself briefly for the audience, maybe first time listening to both of you.
1: Sure. Mike, did you want to go first? Um, sure. Well, good morning. Uh, t- happy to be here. Um, so I'm Mike Levin. I'm a professor uh, at Tufts University. Uh, I run the Allen Discovery Center. And my group works at uh, the intersection of biology, computer science, and cognitive science. Mm -hmm. Good morning, Marwa.
2: Um, I'm Josh Bongard. I'm a professor of computer science here at the University of Vermont, and my area of research is evolutionary robotics. And the connection with Mike is we evolve uh, virtual creatures in simulation, and Mike's group tries to build uh, what we come up with out of cells.
0: Wonderful. So first of all, congratulations for all the success you have been doing so far. Thank you. So the first question I would like to ask you, but you, I think we have already a series about what is actually embodied intelligence. And uh, we ask all the time in soft robotics, should we invest more in the brain or the body side? And I'm curious to ask you first a question about embodied intelligence or embodied cognition from biology perspective and also from robotics or computer science. So if we can go first from biology perspective, what is embodied intelligence or cognition? Is it in the brain or the body or maybe something beyond that? Yeah, just maybe the first question.
1: Yeah, well, I guess the first part of that is to uh, ask what what we think intelligence is in the first place, right? So just the intelligence part of that. So obviously, lots of people have uh, thought about this in the past. And so um, all, what I'll do is uh, just offer uh, our working definition and, and how we think about things. So to me, intelligence is the ability to solve problems in some sort of space. Now, this might be three-dimensional behavioral space, as in you know, typical when you think of animals running around and solving problems. But biology solves problems in all sorts of other spaces, these virtual spaces. So there's metabolic space and transcriptional space. And even space, which is the space of all possible body configurations. So, when, and, and there are many other spaces. So, in all of these spaces, a biological system needs to navigate that space and get to a region that that it, that it that it's trying to get to, so a goal state of some sort that, that is adaptive and, and whatever. So, uh, so the question becomes: How do living things at multiple scales navigate these various spaces simultaneously? And the, for for us, the question of whether it's in the body or in the brain becomes a, a slightly different question because there is no, uh, I mean, anatomically, of course, the brain is a separate organ, but, but, but um, f- fundamentally, uh, all, all cells and tissues can do some of the things that brains do. And so the, it, it, for us, it's a, it's a continuum. So, so it's not that there's a brain and body on this side and, you know, a brain on this side and a body on that side. But it's actually this, this continuum of, uh, of different architectures, both on inside of cells and cell groups and, in fact, whole tissues and organs, that solve these various problems. And so the question is always, what is the optimal level at which to catch a particular system solving these problems and to be able to interact with it?
0: So I'd like to for Josh if they have something to agree or disagree about that. Because I think in soft robotics, we sometimes min- manifest intelligence through the body itself. So if I ask you Professor Josh, do you think that when it comes to robotics, d- deploying this concept, do you think we have to give more attention to both of them? Or maybe sometimes how we can use the intrinsic feature of the material? So that for example the dead fish is swimming upstream, how the, the fish can have dead fish can have this all for free. Yeah, uh, although it's being dead. I don't know if, what what you something thought about?
2: Sure, right. You, you mentioned materials and soft robotics, and, and I, you know, if we're talking about robots, presumably we're making these machines to be useful in some ways, and they need mm-hmm. to solve problems on their own. So this comes back to what Mike was saying, is that organisms and robots alike have to be solving a problem. The, the interesting issue is often, you know, w- what is the problem that they're trying to solve? Um, one aspect of that problem or that challenge is to stay alive and, and propagate into the future. Um, There's an interesting definition of intelligence in the AI literature, which is to keep your options open in the future. So if you think about that, that way of thinking about intelligence, you know, it implies action. You need to act in the world to perform useful work if you're a robot or metabolize or, or homeostat if you're if you're an organism. So if you think about it at a deep level, there is some connection between action and intelligence. And action, the actions you can or can't perform, or the actions that are easy or difficult, those are all a Mm -hmm. function of your body. So embodied intelligence to me is almost a tautology. It's it's hard to think about intelligence in a non-embodied way. Mm -hmm. But the field of AI has had a good crack at that. You know, there's the philosophical side to embodied intelligence as well. My PhD advisor, Roel Pfeiffer, and I wrote a book on this a few years back called How the Body Shapes the Way We Think. Philosophers have been wrestling with this for hundreds and arguably thousands of years. And, you know, it's often easy to think about body and brain separately. And if you look at the fields of robotics and AI since the Second World War, they have also developed somewhat independently into robotics, which focuses on the physical aspects of adaptive behavior, and AI, which is increasingly, you know, non-embodied problem solving and pattern recognition. How do we bring these two branches of, you know, uh, making smart machines back together again? I think that's one of the big open challenges for the 21st century.
0: Great. So I'm curious to ask you both of you about discussion with, for example, designing a robot at an open-ended environment. And that's something I think in biology, how these, these creatures already figure out to do that, to be adaptable to uncertain situation. So when it comes to the discussion between both of you, I'm curious how, it, for you as a computer scientist and computer science, how, how we can design system, living system that can work at open-ended environment scenario like that. What are the challenges, what are the questions do you, both of you share and uh, consider maybe?
2: Yeah, I think that that's a great question, how to how to reconcile the open-ended environment. Um, so just for uh, for your listeners, maybe it's helpful to set up the, the, the Xenobots project where we use an evolutionary algorithm and run it in a supercomputer to design artificial biobots in a simulated environment, and then Mike's group tries to instantiate it in uh, biological tissues. So the immediate question we have to ask on the simulation side is what do we put in to the physics engine? What aspects of biology and physics are, are, is living systems exploiting? How do they exploit it? And how might biobots exploit it to do what we want it to do? So mm-hmm. turn over the floor to Mike and uh, yeah. what he thinks about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, w- one of the important aspects for us is to understand the natural plasticity of the system itself. So the w- one of the amazing things about the Xenobots is that we take cells with a completely normal wild-type genome, meaning no genomic editing, we don't change the cells in any way, and we're finding that they, as a collective, are capable of doing uh, some really novel things that they otherwise normally don't do. And so for me, part of this, this whole, this whole uh, adventure is to figure out ways to computationally explore and predict the the space of possible outcomes that we're normally not used to. So in in Mm -hmm. biology and in, in particular in developmental biology, we are, uh often um this this plasticity is masked by the reliability of development right the fact that a, a frogs a frog egg if you don't do anything else to it very reliably makes a tadpole and so we you sort of as so certainly students sort of get this feeling that okay this is this is, this is what this machine is able to do but the, what we're seeing now and of course people have seen aspects of this before with in terms of epigenetics and, and other other types of experiments that actually no these these cells have uh, very uh, much um, greater capacities for doing things both collectively and singly, singly than what they normally do and so how do we uh, how do we learn to predict that how do we learn to, to to anticipate the kinds of plasticity that these cells will have and so so here I think is is the grand challenge is to use the computational tools to do that.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one of the one of the interesting, one of the interesting things about Mike's work that we find so fascinating on the computational side is viewing the organism at the cellular level that, in a way, the organism is made up of intelligent machines at the tissue level, the cellular level, the subcellular level. So, in many ways, for different parts of the xenobot or for different parts of the organism, the open ended environment is the the cellular environment itself is the neighboring cells and the signals that are coming oh in God. and being sent out. So when, we, when the evolutionary algorithm attempts to rearrange simulated biological tissue, then one hunk of biological tissue now has a new environment. It's up against a new piece of tissue that may be in the adult frog, the wild-type frog. It hasn't been in contact before. What do we know about that novel rearrangement? How do we simulate it? Do we put noise into the simulator? How do we ensure that that novel rearrangement will succeed if we try and build it in reality? Um, that's yeah. that's really kind of an open, open-ended open question for us at the moment.
0: That's very interesting. Uh, we had another podcast, also Alex from Google, he speaks about growing neuro- attempt and and mentioned both of you with that inspiration for that. But maybe the quick question here, do you think when it comes to robotics, what does it take to deploy this intelligent individual uh, cells in the design. Do you think it's, it's challenging what kind of question we have we have to ask ourselves in that case to deploy this concept in soft robotics?
2: Yeah, in soft robotics. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess if we're viewing the Xenobot as a, as a soft robot, it's clearly a very different soft robot from what we normally deal with. And in, in our first Xenobot paper, Mike, Mike and I and our other two co- uh, co-authors talked about this quite a bit. You know, sort of the pros and cons of working with biological materials versus artificial materials. Mm-hmm. So steel is extremely strong electronics are extremely fast at, at relaying information but artificial materials are also quite brittle in that if you look at any one component it's a dumb component. the intelligence is not at the, the level of uh, you know the, the joint or the motor or the sensor. Um, it's at, if, if you're lucky it's at the level of the entire robot but that is not true in biological systems there is intelligence at every spatial scale mm-hmm. um, and so that that raises obviously exci- exciting opportunities because when we're working with biological tissues to build soft robots, those tissues themselves are bots. They are intelligent, they have their own goals, they're trying to do things. We're trying to wrench them into new forms and functions. If we do it in the right way, we get a lot of the inherent plasticity and adaptivity of of life for free. We demonstrated Mm -hmm. in the last two Xenobot papers that you can cut a xenobot almost in half and it will automatically stitch itself back up again. That's not something that the evolutionary algorithm discovered. It's something that came for free because we were working with biological tissues.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So I'm curious to ask you, uh, most of you, about the intelligence of learning. When you combine, for example, artificial cells or materials with living cells, for example, how they can continually learning and have this kind of generic and continual learning. So maybe from biology perspective first, how these cells can have this kind of continual learning, and if we go to computer science and having this hybrid design, how both of them can adapt to continual learning and be adaptable.
1: Yeah, so on the biology side, you know, the, the question of learning uh, is is fairly contentious because uh, some people uh, take take learning to be a very narrow sort of thing that advanced animals with brains do, and then there's the field of basal cognition, which sort of stretches it out into into a more, uh, I would say, evolutionarily uh, um, realistic view where learning shows up very early on in, in the in the web of life, and so. Um, the, the, the thing about, the, the interesting thing about learning is that you have to have a subject that learned something, right? And uh, you have to, when, when you have memories and, uh, and, and learning, it has to belong to some agent that you have to be able to describe. And this is very non-obvious because all, all cognitive agents are made of parts. So when you have something that learned, you have a bunch of it. So, so if, a, you know, if, a, if a rat has learned, has learned something, um, what you really have is a collection of cells and and so let's say let's say the rat has learned that when it presses on a particular level lever it, with its foot it gets some you know some apple juice or something as a reward. This, the cells that interact with the lever are not at all the cells that get the reward. And so the trick then is and so when you say the rat has learned something well what's the rat the rat is some collective of all of these cells that have figured out how to do credit assignment properly. And this of course is very familiar to 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 machine learning and robotics folks is that. Uh, we we the, the trick here is to, is to understand how all of the individual cells have bound together into a, into a larger agent that is the subject of rewards and punishments and things like this. Very non-obvious. This, this also works in, in individual cells. So single cells can learn and, and plants can learn and things without brains. So it's not just a story about brains and neurons. It's a story about how competent subunits can work together in a way that gives rise to a larger scale self. That it can be the owner of memories, the, 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 the center of preferences, the subject of past experiences, and so on, that are not um, individually true of any of the components. So that, that is one of the grand mysteries in biology. And so we're just, too, oh, just starting to really understand how that works in the global, um, in the global sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you, do, if you can elaborate more about how we can do that in, in artificial intelligence, for example, or machine learning how we can have scheduled learning. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I think you know there's a lot of uh, brand new questions. I think for the AI community now that sort of biohybrid technologies are becoming possible. So um, you know, intelligent prosthetics, biohybrids. If you put artificial, you put technology together with living systems, the living system usually learns, right? It will learn to send the right signals to the prosthetic and and receive the signals appropriately. Again, because living systems are so good at learning, and as Mike said, have solved the credit assignment problem, they're they're more or less willing to work alongside technology and share the credit for collective action. But it's the, the prosthetic itself, the artificial side that still grapples with learning how to interpret the signals that are being sent from the living side of the of the biohybrid. So I think you know there's some brand new kind of machine learning problems you can ask at that, that level. The, there's another way to connect technology with living systems, which is what Mike and I have been doing recently, where the learning is the evolutionary algorithm that's learning how to rearrange biological tissues into new forms and functions. And that's you know, sort of a, that's quite different from biohybrids where you're marrying hardware and, and robotics with, you know, with part of an organism. So what are the questions there? If you want an evolutionary algorithm to learn what rearrangements work and what rearrangements don't work. That again is sort of a brand new <clears> way <throat> of formulating, you know, a, a question in AI. And uh, yeah, lo- lots to do.
0: Yeah. And I'm curious to ask you, uh, maybe again, that's a question about, I think in this field about how we can design robots, regenerate after damage or healing. Because I think, yeah, it's still, it's very fascinating what Mike was presenting, I think in Rob's 2018 about regeneration and, And I think that's something also uh, Alex uh, highlighted in the podcast earlier. But if you can tell us more in detail about how do you see uh, fitnesses, for example, for each creature so that they can regrow or regenerate the limb. Yeah, for the audience, maybe just curious to know about that more in in detail.
1: Yeah, so there are a number of uh, organisms that are able to repair themselves after damage. And so, so axolotls, the, the Mexican salamander, is one example where they will re, re, regenerate uh, their, their legs, their, their eyes, their jaws, portions of the brain, the heart, their spinal cord. Um, there are other models like the planarian flatworms that we work with where pretty much every piece of the planarian can regrow the entire thing. So this, this ability to... Um, and to regenerate is a, uh, is a, is a, is a special case of a, of a broader capacity, which is something we call anatomical homeostasis. So this is not just for adult regeneration. Embryonic development does the same thing. And so does remodeling, for example, in metamorphosis from a tadpole to a frog. The, the idea is, is pretty simple. You have this homeostatic loop that uh, continuously deforms and remodels the tissue. So the cells are moving around, they're migrating, they're differentiating, they're doing various things until the the shape becomes roughly uh equal to a target morphology the thing that it's trying to the shape that it's trying to achieve and so it's basically an error minimization scheme that it's able to in some uh coarse grained way sense deviations from the correct pattern and those deviations could be injury they could be teratogens they could be um mutations they could be all sorts of things and so and, and until that that uh that error is reduced below an acceptable threshold things will keep changing so for, for us, the real trick is uh, to understand not only how regeneration happens, and, and lots of people study the, the cellular mechanisms of, of turning this cell type into that cell type and so on, but actually the algorithms of how it fulfills the three steps of that homeostatic cycle, because it needs to do three things. It needs to uh, measure the current shape so that it can tell whether it's correct or not. So it has to. So the collective, and, and this is something very large. So no individual cell can measure something so big. It has to be a collective uh, computation. So, so the collective has to be able to measure the current shape. Then it has to be able to uh, remember what the correct shape is. So there's a kind of pattern memory here that where you can tell, is it right or is it wrong? And we've made some, uh, some, some progress in, in seeing how it stores those memories. And then it has to uh, issue, the, the, the collective has to issue commands to the lower level subunits, meaning the cells, to rearrange in a way that, that gets them closer to this final. So, so to us, this is, this is very much um, this kind of problem solving cycle, really critical to find out how, how does it know when to stop? You know, Very few people actually work on regeneration asking, how, how does it know when to stop? So when a salamander makes a correct arm and then everything stops, how does it know that's what a correct salamander arm looks like? I mean that's a critical question and so so all all of the three sort of all of the aspects of that standard sort of test operate exit loop has to be identified in biology and we've just be, really just begun to do that.
0: I' am ask you just based on what we, what mentioned do you think in robotics we have to go for this question in yeah just answer them or doesn't
2: to go this level. I don't know about this level, but absolutely, a lot of what Mike just said has to be incorporated into robotics, We're we're moving in robotics into soft robotic spaces, into bio-hybrid robots. You know, there's been this assumption throughout the history of robotics that the body of the machine is fixed. And that, that assumption, you know, has to be rolled back. You, you cannot, in my opinion, you cannot make an adaptive machine that has a, a completely fixed body plan. It just, it just doesn't work. You're, you're just too limited. Um, but again, if we're building, you know, depending on what soft robots we're building out of what materials, we can't just borrow directly from biology, right? We couldn't make a, a huge flapping bird and get it off the ground. We had to borrow the principles of heavier than air flight and adapt it to the materials from which it's built. So I think, Uh, As usual in bio-inspired AI and artificial life, you know, we're looking carefully at at what Mike's group is is discovering and figuring out how to distill out of that the basic principles of homeostasis, adaptation, intelligent action, and then build that into whatever materials we're building our soft robots out of. And how to do that well or in a principled manner is, again, you know, a completely open question. Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, the funny yeah. thing is, it's, it's interesting that you say that uh, about, you know, giving up that assumption uh, the, of a constant body. Uh, F- F- biological evolution gave this up long ago because because the interesting thing about um, many, probably not all, but, but m- most creatures is that uh, they are incredibly tolerant to large scale changes of architecture. So, for example, um, you can make uh, we've made tadpoles where the eyes are on the tail. And those instead of in the head, and those animals can see perfectly well. They 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 learn in visual assays, no problem. So so the brain can can immediately. Um, well, first of all, at the cellular scale, if you are a se- if you are a bunch of cells that are trying to make an eye, the fact that you're sitting next to a spinal cord and muscle as opposed to the the brain and then various other things, no problem. You'll still make an eye, and you'll still make an optic nerve that connects to something, the spinal cord nearby, perhaps. And, and so, so that, that plasticity is there and then the plasticity of behavior. So the brain has no trouble interpreting this, this, this weird, uh, you know, sort of electrical signals from, from a new patch of itchy tissue on your tail as visual data and behaving appropriately. It's, yeah, it's, it handles that right off. And so what that, what that is probably signifying is that evolution discovered really early on that in order to be a, adaptively successful and, um, and evolvable, you have to have Uh, that kind of plasticity that that you have to assume that your body can change, and that things don't necessarily go where you can't assume that everything is where it needs to be. And that you can still um, all the different parts compete and cooperate within the body to, to, to result in some sort of adaptive function. So that plasticity, I think, Biology uh, sort of assumes right off the bat that you don't know where anything is, and and that yeah. you still have to you know you still have to get your business done even if even if things are surprising and, and not where you thought they were.
0: Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. I'm curious to ask you: Do you think when we maybe in designing or maybe pushing the limit what we have already uh, from evolution, do you think the designing of the morphology we can advance more beyond what we have already? And I don't know for, for robotics, for example, and biology. Do you think that's something? you think about how we can design something beyond what we really have when it comes to, yeah, just morphology of the body itself or the structure.
2: I mean, I, I, my answer would be absolutely yes. I mean, humans invented the wheel. Um, you know, there's certain things that humans have invented that as far as I know, and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, they have no real analog in biology, maybe at the micro scale, but not, you know, not at the macro scale. So I, I think, you know, maybe it seems obvious, but, you know, when we start to marry biological and, and robotic technologies, we have to figure out how to do this so that we bring together the best of both worlds. And we might be able to achieve, you know, machines that, that have capabilities beyond purely biological or purely artificial.
1: Yeah. And, and even in biology, it's, uh, it's, it's not really obvious what the, um, what the possibilities are, or what the limitations are. You know, people talk about developmental constraints and so on, but, but no one really knows what those constraints are and whether or not, if we really knew what we were doing, we could convince cellular collectives to build almost anything, right? And so what, what are the spaces? What, what's, the morpho- what's, what's the option space for morphologies for any particular genotype? We, we have no idea. And, and this is something that uh, I think the robotics is really going to help us understand.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious about the designing between what we have already. For example, you know about the designing from AI to to biology. So you mentioned a bespoke robotic, uh, Joshua. I think that that's something you mentioned in your talk. If you can tell more about what do you mean mean about that when it comes to designing from uh, simulation to real uh, living robot, the bespoke robotic.
2: Yeah. yeah, bespoke robotics. This was something we kind of snuck into one of our papers. It's a little tongue in cheek. But... The, the idea here is you know, if we're using evolutionary algorithm to rearrange biological tissues in simulation and, and then realize that in reality, an evolutionary algorithm, unlike you know, back propagation of air or other gradient based methods, it doesn't converge on just one optimal solution. It gives you back a population of diverse solutions. And if we're applying an evolutionary algorithm to xenobots or biobots or biological tissue in general, it's giving you back a series of biological machines that do whatever it is you ask them to do, but each machine has a different shape or a different form and it, and it instantiates a solution to that problem or that task in a different way. So it has a unique function. So in theory, if we could, if we could manufacture xenobots or biobots at the same rate that the evolutionary algorithm can spit out unique forms and functions, you could realize what we, you know, sort of were kind of jokingly calling bespoke robotics. You would manufacture a whole bunch of machines, no two of which are alike. And in the long term, I think actually this is a very important problem um, because if you if you are dealing with uh, a monoculture, a monoculture, regardless of whether it's biological or technological, is vulnerable. Um, you know, we're increasingly, we're increasingly concerned about, you know, cybersecurity, you know, cyber attacks, you know, if you think about all the machines, all the computers, they're all running exactly the same operating system, the same version, all of our, all of our industrial robotics, everything is built from the same blueprint, but biology doesn't work like that for a very good reason. If you're all relying on the same way of solving the problem, you are extremely vulnerable. So I think even just from a purely technological point of view it's interesting to think about you know what how do biobots make you think differently about for example cybersecurity which is not my area of expertise but what are the things that become possible when you think about automatically designing uh, form and function for biological machines
1: this you know this question of uh, of of be- bespoke architectures uh, in biology is is very important too because we this issue of control of of the anatomy is is the key to all regenerative medicine, right? So birth defects, uh, cancer, um, traumatic injury, um, aging, all of this boils down to the same question. How do we convince cells to build whatever we want them to build? It might be an eye, it might be a better hand, it might be a a normal hand, whatever it's going to be. How do we control them? And uh, how much plasticity is there? So how much capacity do we have? And how do we uh, how do we do this? How do we specify? So you can sort of imagine. So, so in my head, I have this this idea that of, of a kind of a anatomical compiler, right? That at some point, what you should be able to do is specify the endpoint of what you want. You should be able to draw a creature, sort of like like CAD, yeah, right. You should be able to draw this this creature. And if we knew what we were doing, the system would would would, would decompose that into a set of stimuli to be given to cells that, in the end, would give you that that creature. So. Uh, it's really the same problem. What we're looking for is the ability to make targeted machines, targeted living um, machines, to a particular functional and structural specification. Right.
0: But I'm still curious about the, the transition from what you, from what Mike said, to already in robotics, for example, the growing or how they have the memory to remember that if there's scenario have like that, like the two-headed, for example, uh, example you mentioned. Uh, how we can do that robotic, what kind of question we have to push for, or what kind of direction we can find that answer for designing this robot that can regrow and if there's damage happening autonomously. Um, do you think we can reach that?
2: I, absolutely, and I think, again, my, my work that Mike's involved in, the, the work on ne- neural cellular automata, you know, cool. cellular automata have been around since the beginning of computer science. It's a you know, very compelling concept. But it hasn't really been combined with robotics very much. There's been a few examples here and there, but, but this idea of you know looking to your neighbors, you know, drawing in information, you know, extremely distributed uh, coordination and action that hasn't really penetrated robotics yet. I think that's that's the key, especially as we move into soft robotics and, and regeneration and recovering from damage. I think that'll be extremely useful. Um, mm-hmm. Another aspect for regeneration in, in soft robotics that's important is, again, this idea of embodied intelligence, that we just we relax this assumption that it is a fixed body. Um, Mike and I and and Rebecca Kramer-Bottiglio, who runs a robotics lab at Yale, we had a paper at Robotics Science and Systems uh, back in 2019. We had some simulated and physical soft robots, and we were cutting off legs, and and the evolutionary algorithm was searching for solutions once they'd been injured. And we assumed that we would get regeneration, that the four-legged robot, once it was now a three-legged robot, that it would regrow the fourth leg. But actually that was the minority solution. Often the evolutionary algorithm would push the morphology into a completely different form. Where it would recover the ability to start moving again, it would actually retract the three intact legs and move by peristaltic crawling. So, you know, again, in soft robotics, maybe maybe we can go beyond the concept of a static as a, sta- a static or target morphology. There may be different target morphologies depending on what's going on, and that's a very different way of thinking. I think in in robotics. Um, hmm. Shows again how what we're learning about biology is inspiring us to think differently about uh, about adaptive action in machines.
0: So I'm curious about what could be and after your cooperation, I don't know if there's something you thought about maybe many times and you didn't expect something um, yeah to come up in certain result. You have maybe in, in kind of thoughts or modeling, I don't know, but when you try to deploy it with Surprising! I was still I don't understand how it's happening. Do you have any kind of question, like how it happened, or why it happened like that, or counterintuitive to what you really thought about? Maybe from biology and from the Diniport stimulation, for example. Yeah.
1: Yeah, boy. Uh, so you know, uh, every day, right? So, so I would say, I would say, ninety-five percent of the things we see on a daily basis are. Uh, Surprising and probably in some way counterintuitive, which is telling us that our intuitions aren't aren't very good um, on a lot of these questions. Uh, I'm I'm most struck by this, uh, this the cellular plasticity and the ability to uh, of these cells to cooperate in to, to 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 create these larger scale collectives that have the ability to do these amazingly flexible things and to behave in new ways. And I think the future uh, of, of a lot of important uh, applications in this field, or in actually in many fields, ride on our ability to start to learn to understand this kind of collective intelligence, to, to understand the goals of these uh, collectives and where their goals come from. And what, what is it that, it, you know, when you put these, these um, active agents together in a group, and they, they compete, and they cooperate, and they do all these dynamics, what is the end result of this going to do? You know, it's completely not obvious, and uh, and the, this this new sort of science of of um, synthetic uh, morphology, and and this this marriage of modeling and robotics, and uh, and chimeric uh, various kind of chimeric organisms that are part biological and and new ways to organize them, and in part technological, is really the beginnings of this is to understand go- goal directedness. And that scale up of, of, of cognition from parts to holes. That's that though that we see examples of this every day that just blow our minds. That's that's what I'm most surprised about. Interesting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. 95% is a low, low estimate. <laughs> yeah. from a robotics and AI point of view, this entire Xenobots project has been completely surprising from beginning to end. Um just on the on the robotic side one of the things that's been really interesting is the sim to real aspect of this work is that again we're trying to we're trying to simulate you know frog skin cells frog heart muscle cells we take what what biology knows about those cell types and build it into the simulation but we know there's thousands or millions of details that are not known or that we have yet to build into the simulation so we're giving, you know, we're giving the evolutionary algorithm, we're giving the AI very little information about these Lego bricks, the building blocks that it has to use to come up with something that has useful form and function. And it, specifically in the Xenobots project, what was so surprising to me is that a lot of the designs were transferable from simulation to reality this is a topic that's you know very popular at the moment in robotics there's a lot of effort going into making you know incredibly high resolution GPU based you know simulations you know down to the micrometer of the of the robot and hoping that we can transfer from simulation to reality but I think again if we're doing sim to real with biology often you know biology is a great error corrector right it will it'll sort of paper over things that we didn't get quite right, and we'll adapt. Um, So I think the biology has been helping us a lot on some of the technological challenges like sim to real And in retrospect, that is not something that, that I had thought of when we started out on this. And it suggests to me, again, there may be other, you know, really recalcitrant problems in AI and robotics, like catastrophic forgetting, um, learning to learn, you know, all, all the you know the state of the art problems that AI is currently grappling with. How can biology help us with those? They they may be extremely difficult because we're dealing with purely artificial machines, non embodied machines. We're focusing on synaptic plasticity and maybe not paying enough attention to other adaptive mechanisms from biology. Um, so th- that again has been surprising to me is how surprisingly easy. Certain quote unquote hard problems in AI become when we think about biology or we're inspired by biology in the right way.
0: And do you think for learning, um, I don't know if learning to learn, do you think this other possibility, do you think we have to push beyond what we have already um, in machine learning or artificial intelligence? Do you think any kind of crazy ideas, I don't know, or something we need to push more in that direction? I don't know if we have any sort like that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We do. We, we, Mike and I haven't really done that yet, but again, bio-inspired AI is a large field. I think there's lots of opportunity there. If you have a machine that's made up of machines, which are made up of machines, then by definition, you're always going to have to learn because your neighbors and what's going on, you know, at spatial organizations above you and below you and within you, everything is in flux. You can't, if you're a, you know, you're a cell or a tissue embedded within a, an organism, you can't just sit there and not learn and do the same thing over and over again. Because as Mike was mentioning, there's this constant homeostatic process going on. So you have to learn how to learn. The learning rates or the adaptive rates of things above you and below you, those the timescales of learning or adaptation are different. E- everything is changing, um, and that's something we've only just started scratch the surface of in, in AI. Quite.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean I think, I think you know one of the questions that we uh, w- think about all the time is what aspects of what we see in biology, is really the important thing to carry over into the into the robotics and and the, and the machine learning. So so it isn't going to be any of the details, right? Which gene does what? That that's not going to be the that's not going to be the key thing. The key thing is going to be these large scale dynamics that are sort of you know, almost the software of the system in a certain sense. And so one one example of this is what we see in these architectures that I think in, bio, in biology that is really powerful is this idea of multi scale competency. So this is the idea that. There are lots of levels, so there are, there are subcellular molecular networks and then cells and then tissues and organs and so on, but it's not just that there's a hierarchical organization, but the, the, the important part of that is that at each point, the components at that level have their own local goals. So they are all goal-directed systems, whether it be very, uh, very humble types of goals like um, metabolic homeostatic kinds of things, all the way up through very sort of long-term goals that require planning and so on, which might be executed by advanced kind of creatures and so on, and everything in between. So the fact that, that, that all of these things are cooperating and competing with each other to continue to implement their local goals despite changes in their environment is what gives rise to evolvability and I think is what gives rise to this incredible plasticity that we see a robustness that we see in the biological world that I think we've got to port over. That's one of the many things we have to port over is this, is this idea that, that um, there isn't one level at which, okay, the robot is smart, but the parts of it are, are, are passive. We need to have some sort of um, goal directedness at every, at every level. And then you get these multi-scale systems that are incredibly robust. That's a a claim that remains to be be tested and and shown. Mm -hmm. I
2: would say there's some of that advance, there's some of that change of thinking in robotics already, but I think it's actually unintentional so far. If you take uh, autonomous driving, for example, you look at the history of trying to make self-driving cars, the focus at the beginning was on the car itself, right? How do you make the car autonomous? as that technology has started to mature the thinking has become much more about in the US at least you know the national transportation infrastructure as a whole you know highways roadways pedestrians fuel stops cargo people that's the right level of thinking and then you have to think about the cars that are a part of that system even the you know even the political system and the, the regulatory network around transportation you know the the way in which regulation is adapting in lockstep with advances in autonomous driving. People talk more, the narrative is much more about sort of this co-evolutionary, you know, dynamic between regulation and autonomous driving. You hear relatively little about advances in the car itself anymore. And I think that you know that systems level thinking, that's that's what happens in biology. We need to do that in a conscious way much more in
0: robotics. So I'm curious to ask you, since you already, co- most of you, founded uh, an Institute for Computational Design or- uh, Organisms, so I don't know if the kind of feature do you think you went to Xenobots? Do you think we need this feature or we aspire to have that, this functionality in Xenobots? I don't know if there's something from, I don't know if you have this kind of question, there's something was missing or I uh, will this this feature already exist? I don't know if that's a question do you have or something? like that?
2: I mean, we've only worked with two cell types to begin with, skin okay. and muscle t- tissue, and, and clearly there are many, many more cell types and sensory systems uh, that we could build into into Xenobots. Mike, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, we have a very long uh, kind of uh, roadmap of, of all sorts of uh, capabilities that that we're going to um, try to achieve. It, to, to me, one of the important things about these Xenobots, so, so I kind of see this as three phases, right? So, so, so phase one is uh, a useful synthetic living machine. So, so can we program them both structurally and behaviorally to do something useful? And there's a million useful applications that you can think of. Um, Then, then sort of in the medium term, I think of this as a, as a, as a discovery platform to better understand the rules of morphogenesis. So to really understand how it is that uh, we, can, we can convince cellular collectives to build specific things on demand, so to really understand the rules of this. Of, and, and, that, and, and those applications are in regenerative medicine, so not specifically having to do with bots, but but using those same strategies on cells in the body to, to induce regeneration, repair, and so on. And then sort of the third phase, I see this as teaching us something profound about um, collective intelligence and purpose in general so it's a little bit more philosophical in a sense is to help us to refine our our terminology everything from from goal directedness to self-assembly to emergence to robot machine living organism and you know, all of these these things are not as um uh, they're they're not they're not simple to define and, and those the, the 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 reality i think now has the, the science has gotten beyond um it's gotten ahead of where the philosophy has been so we need we need to catch up with some of the conceptual issues all the way through to, to, to ethics and to various other things. So so I, I see, you know, the, the the novel capabilities are really important for that for that first part, but there's lots of other, you know, lots of other things that are not specifically aimed at um, a, a single functionality as much as in learning how the whole system works.
0: Right, yeah. I'm curious for both of you about the aspiration behind the institute. What kind of maybe, I don't know, Uh, The follow-up project or I don't know what about the vision behind this Institute that both of you found it. So What aspiration do you have?
2: Well, we were uh, we were kind of joking or I was kind of joking that the mission statement for the Institute is task AI Organism that's that's it, right? So as a roboticist again, it's this idea of trying to not make any assumptions about what the machine is that will perform the task or, or solve the problem that you have is, is, I think, for me, one of the things I hope the institute can do is really roll back our assumptions about what the appropriate technology is, the constellation of technologies for a given, a given problem. And again, biology has much to teach us, to teach us there. We'd like to start with what is the problem we'd like to solve. And make as few assumptions about the solution as possible and see what we can evolve or create or hybridize to, to solve it.
1: Yeah, I mean for, for me, I, I agree with this with this idea of rolling back assumptions because if you think about it all of biology is really working on an example of N equals one, right? We have, we have this one biosphere that has generated some, some standard model systems and, and, you know, some of them are, are more unusual than others, but nevertheless, they all come from one place. They're all part of the same evolutionary stream. And what oftentimes happens is that people get um, uh, it's hyper-focused on a specific um, a model speed, you know, model animal or whatever. And, to me, this is much more of an artificial life kind of flavor to it in the sense that I'm not interested in the zoology of how one particular species happened to evolve to do XYZ. I want to understand basic principles of life as it can be, and in particular of mind as it can be. So, so we don't yet have exobiological you know, examples, but we may at some point. And so I, I think we need to get on to the, uh, the task of creating novel examples now. So that so that we can really understand, you know, as as Feynman said, right, you don't really understand something until you can make one yourself. We need to start doing this and not only from the perspective of origin of life research, but actually of uh, novel examples of these collectives that scale up from 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 one level of of intelligence to the next level. And I think that, uh, you know, one one like like Josh pointed out that that um, these these creatures, you know, their evolutionary history took place on his computer. Right? The the individual cells, of course, evolved on on Earth, but their selection pressures were to make nice skin that sits on the outside of an embryo and keeps out the bacteria. The, the right this was this was what what the Xenobots are able to do is is not a product of direct selection forces rewarding for Xenobot like behavior. And so um, understanding the 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 power of evolution and and the basic principles of of life by creating these completely novel examples, I think is, is really powerful. And, and also I think you know we're going to be surrounded soon, I think in our lifetime, we're going to be surrounded by all kinds of very novel agents in the sense that hybrids of you know, humans with implants and, and, and our, you know various kinds of robotics with living cells in them and um, hybrid animals and, and every possible combination of, of life and machine is going to be out there somewhere. And we're gonna be living with all of these things. And what I would like our institute to be is uh, is a foundational, um, uh, a center of gravity for starting to uh, really come to grips with 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 life and mind as it can be, so that we can develop everything from, from applications to, um, to 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 frameworks of how do we relate to creatures that are completely different than us, that don't look like us, they don't, they didn't come, their origin story is different than ours is. Uh, and yet, and yet, they may have uh, you know high intelligence and high um, cognitive capacities in various ways. How do we relate to all of these? You know, both practically and 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 sort of you know ethically and all of that. So, so I, I would like us to be a, a center of gravity for that kind of thing.
2: I wanted to come back to to applications for a moment. As, as Mike mentioned, a real focus of the institute is very basic science, but I think there you know we there are so many pressing social issues at the moment. You know, global challenges. That are not going to be solved by existing technology. We can deploy, you know, as many solar panels as we want. We can eat as much plant-based meat as we want. These are these are very good things. But I think a lot of us would agree that if we're really going to tackle some of the big, big challenges, we need to we need to develop technologies that we can't even imagine right now. And that that's a daunting challenge. And some of those technologies that we can't imagine may literally be technologies we can't imagine. And that's part of the reason why I like to work with evolutionary algorithms, is they can often design things for us that we would not have imagined until we saw it in action. And so I think, you know, hopefully one of the things that the Institute will do will be to automate out-of-the-box thinking or out-of-the-box design, right? It'll create new kinds of creatures, useful machines going to be crazy admixtures of metals and biological tissues at you know the macro, meso, micro, nano scale, things that are completely different from anything that exists at the moment and aside from the you know the intellectual fun of creating those sorts of things hopefully they can be pressed into service to tackle some of these really big challenges that we face. Wonderful, uh,
0: thank you for sharing that. So I think someone goes to the end and have a few questions. The first one, what could be technological roadblocks based on what you mentioned about the challenges that we have beneficial uh, solution or application? And I know it's very challenging, as you said, but what could be technological roadblocks, do you think, maybe from biology, maybe understanding, and uh, it's very hard, and maybe and also what you mentioned from your side. So what could be technological roadblocks to, do you think guys You have?
1: Um, from from our, from our end, uh, the biggest technological roadblock is uh, novel instrumentation, um, and I don't, yeah, I don't think it's a roadblock as much as it's just the next step of this field. Is that uh, there are lots of important novel instrumentation that we have to build to uh, both create and really explore the capabilities of these uh, hybrid and synthetic living machines. So um, it's the next step. Of, you know, we we made uh, one of the first um, automated um, training. Uh, and testing stations to look at memory and regenerating brains and plenary and all that it was just 10 years ago and that was just that was just the first step of this you know we need automation and we need um, w- ways to uh, to create these things in in uh, in, in high throughput and then uh, and then characterize them in high throughput the way that we can now do with genetics and really to, to take bioinformatics to the next level beyond uh, dealing with, with protein and, and, you know, and, and nucleic acid um, types of information up to structural and behavioral information. So really sort of crank up bioinformatics to the next level.
2: So I would say the, the technological roadblocks at the moment is um, scaling up physical technology. So if you look at AI, you know, we can eat, once you've trained a neural network, you can make a million copies of it. It's easy to deploy it at large scale. Um, but if you're going to try and design, you know, a million machines, either Xenobots or traditional robots, you need, you know, factories, you need, you need deployment systems, and typically it incurs a high carbon footprint, you know, even the multi-billion parameter neural networks in order to train them now, there's a considerable cost in carbon to train them. So if we are going to tackle some big challenges, you know, at the national or the global scale, how do we create technologies and scale them up to that? large enough numbers that they can have a positive impact without causing more problems along the way? And again, I think we can look to biology. Biology is scaled up, covered covered the planet, uh, changed the planet. But also, you know, maybe there are ways to do this in a more carbon friendly or, you know, a, a smaller way. You know, can we leverage some of the re- self-replicative abilities of biology that make copies of themselves and exponential growth. Again, doing this in a careful manner, but I think we, again, learn a lot from biology about scaling up physical technologies in a, in a lightweight way. I think that's, at the moment, a huge technological roadblock for every single AI and robotic technology that exists, autonomous cars, drones, even you know neural networks. That we have yet to solve and again i think we can look to biology for some potential solutions
0: so maybe the few quick questions left, left i think uh, what could be something you learned most of you i think a way of thinking uh, how to choose a problem because i think that sounds like very interesting how we choose a problem and that, how we can ask the right question what kind of maybe something changed both of you or the kind of way of thinking about the problems or approaches or qualities of thinking uh, i don't know if there's something you changed after that, what do you have both of you doing here?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I, again, this is just anecdotal, but most of my favorite collaborations, including the one with Mike, is I knew about Mike's work from reading his papers from years back. But when I first came across his work, I had no idea how it would connect with what, what I do or what we do in robotics. Same thing with Rebecca Kramer-Bottiglio at Yale. So I would say, you know, especially for your postdocs or students or, or, you know, junior members of the academy that are listening to your podcast, we all have those papers where it just blows your mind and it's amazing and it kind of resonates with the things you do, but you don't see any obvious connection. You know, it's to just let those things marinate in your mind and, and you know, just let, let them sit there and think. And, you know, it takes a while, but sometimes you actually do make that, connection, you know, email the author of the paper, see if you can get something going. I think that's, you know, finding people that are pretty far from what you do, but you know intuitively there's something there if you can make that connection. To me, that's often the most fertile soil for, for long-term and, and fruitful collaborations.
1: Yeah, to, to, to me, um, I, I, I often focus on the supposed boundaries between disciplines and to ask myself why is there a boundary and what does it mean in the way that uh, people in each side think about things right so when you think about a biologist and a computer scientist talking to each other and you think of all the gaps that happen in that conversation why is that right so why is one side focused on one particular area and why is the other side um, focused on a different area what is there that can be ported and and what kind of symmetries are there you know what can you what can you what kind of knob can you turn to turn this conversation into that conversation right and what you know can we can we think of what, what aspects of biology can we think of as really a problem in computer science just using a different substrate, right? It's a medium. It's not, you know, transistors, whatever. It's, it's, it's cellular types of um, substrate. So what, what, what are the invariants that, that should look the same in the different disciplines and what are not? And that's often very hard, but it often leads you to think about things in a new way.
0: Wonderful, yeah. And Bibi Akarsiski, what could be the favorite book you have ever read? I don't know if you would like to share with the audience.
1: Well,
2: that's a tough one. Marwa, right, I don't, I don't know if you can see Mike's screen, but he's got <laughs> lots to choose from behind him there. Okay, so I, 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 favorite book. I, I know one that I, I would say there's one book that I recommend most to my students, which is Vehicles by Valentino Breitenberg. It was written in the 1980s. Um, a lot of roboticists will already know this book. Um, Bradenberg was a neurophysiologist, studied fruit flies. Um, it, it's a beautiful book. It's written almost like a series of fairy story, uh, fairy tales. Um, he talks about vehicles, which you could interpret as robots or organisms or something else. It's, it's a very simple book, but it's it's pregnant with so many ideas and so many questions that we still haven't answered uh, in robotics. It would definitely be be up there on my list. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I would find it very hard to pick just one thing, but, but I'll just mention that the first thing that came, came to my mind are several books by this guy, J.C. Bose. And it's now, it was well over 100 years ago now. He worked in India, was one of the first electrophysiologists. And what was really cool is that he took his electrophysiology equipment and he started applying it um, more broadly. So he would he would measure plants, of course, but also it, it would also things like metals. And then he would he would um, do things that you can do in traditional electrophysiology. So let's say anesthetics, right, and sort of knock down the electrical activity, and 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 work and show that you can actually do the same thing in plants, and in fact, the same thing. You can, he saw some of the same phenomena in, in in organic materials like like metal. And so, to me, that the details don't matter at all. What matters is this this idea of of, of this, um, symmetry knob where you take stuff from one field and you say, okay, but what are the, the central, um, the, the central concepts here and can I pivot them to apply them to other fields? And it really sort of opens up your mind to think about that. You know, traditionally you would never think of that because you're locked into the, well, you know, neuroscience has these synapses and neurons and there's something, but, but what if that's not, the magic isn't in the, in the, in the actual material? What if the magic is in, uh some other aspect of the organization and how can i port some of those tools just something that came to my mind
0: thank you thank you for sharing the so i will respect your time and we close here i don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say most of you before we're closing any final words you'd like to say
2: just again i'd like to in- inspire and motivate and encourage you know, students working in ai and robotics to think broadly to, to look at biology physics chemistry you know if they're so- budding soft roboticists. You know, everyone talks about interdisciplinary work, but it, it really is, you know, the the next frontier. There is so many unanswered questions, or questions that haven't even been asked at the intersection between these fields. Read the literature, you know, think about these problems, and uh, yeah, try try and think across boundaries.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with all that, and and I would I would add the the flip side to that. So what I would say to the students in biology is that there is an amazing world of Uh, model systems waiting for you in robotics and in uh, in computer science um, both both software and hardware and both and that these are going to uh, teach us lots of important things that are that are hard to do in standard um, living model systems
0: so yeah thank you once again for so like for your time i really appreciate your time it was enjoyable listening to you. you thank you thank you
1: so much thanks for having us thank
0: you thank you